front. Great to have you here. If you guys are new or visiting or tuning in for the first time, my name is Drew. I'm so glad you're spending your Sunday here with us. Hey, if you have your Bibles, let's grab those and open up to the book of James. We'll be in James chapter 5 for our time this morning. Earlier this summer, a group of pastor buddies and I thought it'd be a really good idea to get in the car and head east about 13 hours to Branson, Missouri. Anybody here ever been to Branson? couple people, Branson, beautiful place, beautiful place. Went down there, and I've got a friend who's got a little cabin on Table Rock Lake, and so we thought it'd be a good idea to spend a couple days just floating in the lake on a pool noodle, and it would be good for the soul, and it was. But the last day we were there, we decided to go to Silver Dollar City. Anybody ever been to Silver Dollar City? A few hands here. Silver Dollar City is a really fun place. If you love bluegrass music, cherry cobbler, roller coasters, and humidity, it's your kind of place. It's for sure your kind of place. And I hadn't been in years. We took the girls in there a little. But I hadn't been to ride roller coasters since I was a teenager. And so here is this group of seven of us running around from ride to ride, like a bunch of 12-year-olds, getting in line, just having a great time. Well, the first ride we get on, and, and just a disclaimer, I, I love roller coasters. I mean, there's just something about roller coasters. But there's something about me that just, I don't think my body likes roller coasters, right? And I feel like the older I get, the more my body is like, no, we don't do this anymore. And so I got on this first roller coaster, and it was like something from the Wild Wild West movie with Will Smith. And you're like in these spinning teacups, but yet you go upside down and do loop-de-loops and all these things. And after that first ride, I said, I, I, I might go to the kitty area, right? And I might just go splash in the splash pad. But anyways, I hung in there, and we went, walked around, and we found this ride called the Outlaw Run. And I had never been on this ride before, but here's a group of us. As we're clicking to the top, I feel really bad for this lady that got put in our group right next to me. Because in about 10 seconds, I began screaming like my nine-year-old self. And the entire time, I think, she was plugging her ears. But, you know, what I love about roller coasters, especially one you've never been on before, is you don't know what's coming. And so we're click, 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 click to the top. And all of a sudden, unbeknownst to us, 200-foot drop, three loop-de-loops, two 360s, and a slamming halt to the end. And it was amazing. It was so good. It was one of those moments, you guys have had these in life, when you don't know what to do and how to respond until it's over, and then you just look at each other and you're like, yeah! So we're like high-fiving each other, and we get out, walk around, wait in line again, go again. Get out, walk around, wait in line, go again. Like four times we ride this ride. It was amazing. So for the rest of the day, for about six hours, we, me and this group of dudes walked and ran, really, from ride to ride and stood in line, sometimes 30 minutes to an hour, trying to recapture the magic of that moment. And at the very end of the day, we couldn't find anything that mounted up to it, so we went back and rode it a couple more times. But, you know, as I got out of there and I got home and I started thinking about roller coasters and, and, and theme parks, I started to think, isn't that a lot like life? And I feel like the, the theme park has a lot of life lessons. Like, you know, always buy the cup so your lemonades are only $2 instead of $7.50. You know, like plan ahead, right? Make sure to go to the bathroom before you go, right? Like those kind of things. But what about life when we go from thing to thing trying to find something to captivate our hearts? You know, we went from ride to ride and stood in line for an hour hoping that we would find something that would draw us in, that would captivate us, that would fill us up. And I feel like in life we do that too. That we move from thing to thing in life. We move from moment to moment in life hoping that we're going to find something that's going to bring us that joy, that satisfaction, that hope. That's going to fill the void. Or, or, or maybe we're walking through a really hard season and we're just waiting for a solution to our problem. 
And, and I don't know about you, but for me, I'm always looking forward to that next big event at church. Or I'm looking forward to the next vacation. Or I'm looking forward to go see Need to Breathe at Red Rocks or something. And no, so are amazing times, fun moments, and make for really good Instagram stories. But they never stay with you long enough, and you're just looking for the next thing. And, and i got to wonder, why is that? Why, why does nothing ever seem to truly satisfy and hang and captivate our hearts for good? And I, and I think it has to do with what the Bible says about us looking to fill our hearts on things that were never meant to do that. C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia and many great books, wrote a book called Mere Christianity. And, and in Mere Christianity, he's got a chapter called Hope. It's a fantastic chapter, and it's, just, it's full of great quotes. But he said something that really stood out to me. Notice what C.S. Lewis says. He says that if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And so I, I think there's something to that, that why we go from ride to ride, we go from event to event, we go from thing to thing to try to fill us up and satisfy us and fill us with joy, but it never lasts, it doesn't stick with us. And I think it's because we're looking for something to fill us that wasn't meant to fill us. In the book of James, chapter 5, J- Jesus' little brother James He's going to talk to us about this. And he is going to say that, that, that we weren't designed to be captivated, to have our hearts filled on the things of the world, but that God wired us in such a way that there's something bigger and better for us to focus our attention to and to fill our hearts on. And this is especially true when we're walking through the hard seasons of life. If you've been with us the last few months, we've been walking through this book of James, just chapter by chapter and verse by verse, and seeing that James is tackling a lot of the big issues of life, and he's telling us how we can be authentic with our faith. And he tells us that we can get real with our faith by seeing what's inside of us spill out. And so we can look and see how genuine our faith is by looking at the way we actually live our lives. And so what words do you say? What's the quality of your relationships? What's your view towards money? And today, James is going to actually talk about how we wait on life, how we wait on the situations of life, on the solutions of life, and what we look forward to in life. Last week, we kicked off James 5, and James had some pretty poignant words for a group of non-Christians who were taking advantage of Christians in the church. If you guys remember, James said things like, weep and howl, because misery is upon you. And he was talking to a group of rich landowners who were taking advantage of the Christians in the church. They're withholding wages from them. And so you had a church full of people who were frustrated and who were walking through a difficult season and were being taken advantage of. And James writes to them today, and he tells them, wait. I know you want vengeance. Wait. I know you want all things to be made right. Wait. I know you want your solutions to be fixed or you want the, the, your ship to come in, but wait. And he tells us exactly what we should wait on. Now, James' words weren't just meant for Christians 2,000 years ago, though. They were meant for us. Because in this room, I can guarantee that we have a lot of us in a space where we are waiting. We are waiting on something. We're waiting on God to answer that prayer. We're waiting on our dreams to come true. We're waiting on the health diagnosis that we've been hoping for. We're waiting on a situation to be made right. And as the great theologian Tom Petty himself said, waiting is the hardest part. And so this is what James is going to tell us how to wait, and what to do while we wait, because it makes all the difference. If you have your Bibles, let's look here and see what James says. 
James chapter 5, starting in verse 7 and reading down to verse 11. Here's what James says. He says this. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have heard the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and is merciful. Forefront, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the words of James. Uh, Lord, we, we thank you for uh, the reminder uh, that, that James understands, that God, that, that, that God understands. And through the pen of James, he helps direct our hearts to uh, the, the, the focus that we need as we walk through the difficult situations of life or as we're waiting for uh, our dreams to come through or, Lord, as we wait for prayers to be answered. Father, we pray and, and, and ask that you answer uh, the, our prayers, Lord, and, and our specific prayers this week. We think of uh, Cindy Taggart as she's going in to um, have uh, the, uh, the mass removed, um, Lord, this week on Tuesday. And, Lord, we pray that the doctors are able to remove all of the cancer and that she um, can, can move back to, to good health, that the doctors will put a great plan of treatment in place, and that she'll be back to 100% and feeling good and be cancer-free very, very soon. Father, we uh, continue to lift up the smart family who uh, has been walking through difficult weeks after Coralie has passed. We pray for uh, Rick and Pam and the entire family, Lord, as you just give them peace and comfort, knowing that Coralie is now with you in, in the best of all places. Father, we pray for Rhonda Wharton, Lord, as she continues to heal after being in the hospital. And, Lord, we know that there are so many um, prayers in this room, so many needs in this room, in this community, the Lord, that you help our hearts be attentive to where you're leading us and, and so we can be praying together for one another because we know that you love to move through the prayers of your people. Father, speak to us through your word today. Help us to see how we can wait well and how we can be patiently waiting on you. And, Lord, I pray that you stir our hearts up for you and that we leave today looking more like Jesus than when we came. And so we ask this in the strong name of Jesus. And everybody agreed, said, amen. Amen. Last year, my daughter Emma, she's nine, she was having some stomach aches. And so we took her into the doctor, and the doctor said, well, maybe there is something here. You know, what, what is it that she eats that causes her stomach to hurt? We're thinking, what's well, dairy? Maybe it's gluten. And so the doctor says, well, let's just kind of do a, a trial run and see how she does. So let's move, let's remove dairy from her diet. And so we're kind of waiting. We give it a month to see how it goes. And we see that it, she starts to feel better, but then she gets stomach aches again. We're like, what is going on, you know? So we start kind of toying with what she's drinking and eating and all these things. And finally, we call the doctor, and he said, hey, it's, I think it's time we come in and we do a scope. And so what they were going to do is they were going to put her to sleep, and they were going to sedate her, and they were going to run a, a, a scope down into her intestines and see if she, had, if she had an inflammation, any inflammation in her intestines. And, of course, we're waiting for this appointment, right? It's a couple, it's a, a few weeks out, and we're just nervous. I'm just a, kind of a nervous wreck as I'm waiting on this. And we go into the waiting room, and I'm waiting in the waiting room, and I, now I'm really a mess. Emma's great, right? She's playing on my phone. She's just happy, laughing, and I'm over here, like, chewing my nails, you know? And so we go back, and, and the, they do the scope, and now we have to wait on the doctor to call to tell us what's going on. And, and so then I'm a nervous wreck, and Dr. Hadley's his name. He's an amazing doctor. 
And he calls and he says, we did the scope and we looked at her, in, her, her intestinal lining and we can see that she has inflammation. She has, celi- she has celiac disease. And so you're going to have to move straight, completely gluten-free diet. And, of course, we're like, oh, what is this going to be like? This is going to be so hard. And, and so then we're waiting on that appointment for him to tell us what she can eat. And then we start the gluten-free thing, and we're messing up, and we're frustrated, and we're waiting to see how she does. And so we go back about six months later. This is just a few months ago. And the doctor did his exam. He said, hey, I want you to know, Emma, is no, not, not because of me, Emma's done such a good job eating. The inflammation's completely gone. She's completely healthy. Just stay on this diet, and she'll live a great, beautiful, long life. And I was like, praise God, that's great. But all of that time leading up to that, I was waiting and frustrated and worried and stressed. I think we've all been in those moments, haven't we? Where we're waiting on something. We're waiting on the solution. and We're waiting on something to fill the void. Or we're waiting on the promotion. We're waiting on that relationship. We're waiting for that thing to be made right. But what James says to us right here is that I, th- I think we, if we capture it, it has the power to change our lives. Because what James is saying is this, that the only way to really wait well is to focus on something bigger than your situation. That, like, if you're waiting on something, you're going to be consumed by that thing. But if you can wait on something bigger than your situation or bigger than you, then it'll change your perspective. So I know this is true in my life, and I would imagine it's true in yours. Because when you're waiting on something to happen, you can't become completely consumed with that situation. It's all you can think about, right? You ever been in a situation where you're waiting on getting in the raise? Or you're waiting on the promotion? Every day you go into work, what are you waiting for? Is today going to be the day? Is today going to be the day they're going to come talk to me? Is today going to be the day that I'm going to see it on my paycheck? It's all you can think about. Or maybe you're waiting on a situation to get right in, and you're constantly checking your phone for that person to call. Or you're constantly waiting for the window to call the doctor. It consumes your Mind. So James is going to say, if you're waiting on a solution to your situation, you'll never wait well. The only way to truly wait well is to focus on something bigger than yourself. Notice what he says in verse 7. He tells us what that thing is. He says, when we wait, if we're going to wait well, we have to wait on Jesus. Look what he says. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. So what is James talking about here when he says the coming of the Lord? What is he telling us to wait on? on. A couple weeks ago, I was upstairs in the kitchen, and I was making dinner or doing dishes or, you know, something fun, and I, I hear, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. It was really faint. I didn't know where it was coming from, and so I'm kind of like walking around the house. Wait, I realize it's Chloe, and she's in the basement in the girl's bedroom, and Hallie's bed has got a big headboard, and then there's a space, and then there's the mattress. She had somehow crawled back in there, was hanging off the bed with her foot stuck underneath the headboard, like being held up by her ankle. And so I'm like, hold on, help is on the way. You know, I run down there, and I rescue her. You know, it's one of those dad moments, you know. Like, dads, take advantage of those moments. I think James is telling us that, hang on, help is on the way. Like, no matter what you're going through in life, hang on, help is on the way. Be patient and wait on the coming of the Lord. If you were going to do a word study, if you were going to do a Bible study on this concept of the coming of the Lord... There's three words that we see throughout the New Testament that are used for this phrase. And so I'm going to test your skills a little bit. You guys ready? A little audience participation here. There's three words. The first word is the Greek word epiphania. What do you think our English translation to that is? Epiphania. Epiphany. Right. Good job. You guys are good. 
Yeah, these guys are good. So epiphany, epiphania, refers to the fact that when Jesus comes back, he'll be visible. Right? It's not some like mysterious, mystical thing. Like, we're going to see Jesus when he returns. Like, one day, Jesus will come back and we'll see him. There's another word. The second word is apocalypsis. What do we get our word from that? Apocalypse, right? And when we think of the apocalypse, we think of like Jesus on a white horse with like a thigh tattoo with a knife in his hand, right? Like laser beams coming out of his eyes. But really the word apocalypsis talks about when Jesus comes back in power, we're going to see his glory and his majesty, and he's going to push back the dominion of darkness, right? That's going to be the end. That's going to be game over right there. But then the other word used 24 times in the New Testament, which is the word that James uses, is the root parousia, which is translated as presence or coming. And so James is saying, be patient and wait for the presence of the Lord. Be patient and wait for Jesus to come alongside us. Be patient and wait for that day that the Bible promises where Jesus is going to come back and he's going to make everything right. Where he's going to fix what was broken when he is going to make all things new. One of the most interesting books in the Bible is the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, you have the apostle John. He's on the island of Patmos. He gets this vision from God of what's going to happen at the end when Jesus comes back. And it's, it's really amazing. If you have your Bibles, look with me. Re- Revelation chapter 21. Notice what John writes. Just take on the imagery here. It's so powerful. Notice what John sees. He says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, his presence. God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and they will be and be their God. Look at verse 4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. You see that picture? The Bible is pointing forward to this day when Jesus returns and Jesus comes back. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be in a thousand years. But when Jesus comes back, he's going to make everything new and restore everything that was broken. And James says that when you walk through life and you see the problems and the brokenness and the struggles and you want to see the solution to the void in the situation, lift your eyes up and gaze at heaven because heaven is when everything will be made right. Now, you might read that, you might hear that, and you might think, well, that sounds good, but it sounds sort of like a fairy tale. Like, I like the idea of looking towards heaven, but how does heaven help me with my problem? How does heaven fix my broken relationship? How does looking for Jesus' return help me with my health situation right now? I need answers now. How does heaven help me make my mortgage payment this month? But what I want us to see, friends, is that James isn't telling us to fall into some fantasy novel. James is talking about something that is real and something that is concrete. And he is telling us that if we want to get real with our faith, this is the only way we wait well. See, what James is saying is this, that when we wait for solutions, we become consumed with the problem. But when we wait for Jesus, we become consumed with the problem solver. That if I'm thinking about my solution to my problem, all I can think about is my problem. But when I'm thinking about Jesus, 
I'm thinking about something bigger. I'm thinking about the kingdom of God that will come and fix everything and make everything new. I told you about chapter 10 of Mere Christianity, the chapter on hope. C.S. Lewis says this. It's so good. If you haven't read Mere Christianity, buy a copy today. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. He says, hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. Lewis is saying that you are actually wired to look to heaven, that you, your capacity is built for something bigger than the situation in front of you. And I, I love this quote from Lewis. This is so good. He says this, Aim at heaven, and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you'll get neither. Think of how true that is. If all I do is think about the solution to my issue, I'm shooting at earth, and my gaze is not lifted. But when I lift my gaze to heaven, and I keep my mind on Jesus, everything else falls into place. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, was Matthew 6, was talking to a group of, of Jewish men and women who were under the oppression of Rome. Many of them didn't have money in the bank or food in the fridge. And Jesus stood in front of them, and he says, don't be anxious. He says, don't be anxious about what you're going to eat. Don't be anxious about what you're going to wear. Don't be anxious about what you're, where you're going to live. Don't be anxious about any of these things. Notice what he says in verse 33. He says, instead, seek first the kingdom of God. He said, you want to focus on all the little things around here and all the solutions to your problems, but that is never going to really answer the question in your heart and your soul and fill the void that you feel. You need to lift your gaze to heaven and focus on the kingdom of God. And then what? All these things will be what? added to you. I think of Paul, the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians. Paul is in prison writing a letter to the group of Christians in Philippi who are being persecuted for the faith, who are being outcast from society, and who are fearing their lives. And Paul has the audacity to tell them to rejoice. But notice how he says it. Philippians 4 verse 6, Paul says this, I'm sorry, Philippians 4, verse 4. Paul says this, Rejoice in the Lord always, no matter what your situation is. Always means in the Greek, always. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Notice this, the Lord is near. That means God's presence is near. That God is coming. That God is always there. Notice this, do not be anxious about anything. What? But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to be made in the God. And what's going to happen? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then he says this, and we're not done yet. Notice this. Paul keeps preaching. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. James says in James 1.17 that God is, the, God is the giver of all good gifts. So all the good things we think about come from who? Forefront? God. So when we lift our gaze to heaven and we think about God, it puts everything else in its place. God has wired the world to work in a way where the deep, rich, full life is available only in Jesus. And so we have to lift our eyes above our mess into the goodness of the problem solver, and everything comes into place. Now, if I said amen right there, we'd walk away going, eh, that was a good idea, but how do we actually do it? Because the reality is, it sounds like something I'm going to tell my kids before they go to bed and we pray, right? How do you actually put this into place? 
It's a beautiful idea. It's a good concept. But how do I do it when life around me is falling apart? Or I'm, I, how do I do it when I'm feeling depressed? How do I do it when I'm walking through a difficult situation at work or in a broken relationship? So thankfully, James gives us the answer in three pictures. He tells us about a farmer, about prophets, and about Job. And we'll move pretty quickly through these. But what I want us to see as we look through the rest of this text is that at the heart of what James talks about in these examples is the, what, what Paul in Galatians 5.22 calls the fruit of the spirit of patience. Notice what James writes here in verse 7. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the, for the precious fruit of the earth, being, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Verse 8, You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, you see that word patient right there. How many of you, when you saw the word patient, were just like, oh, man, that's me. I'm just crushing it at patience right now. How many of you were like, man, this week I was so patient, it was ridiculous. Second question. How many of, this, of you this week yelled at your phone because it was moving too slow? How many of you yelled at your laptop because it wasn't downloading that PDF fast enough? And how many of you gave up on downloading an episode on the Netflix app because it took more than 14 seconds? <laughs> like, we live in a culture that has done everything it can to make us not wait, but it has ruined our patience. Not that we ever really had patience, but any patience we had, it's gone. You know, when I was a kid and we went on trips, we would ride in the car and there wasn't a whole lot to do, right? And I remember 1994, whatever it was, we loaded up my dad's 1992 Cavalier. It was like this aquamarine color. It was pretty sweet. We got hold up this 92 Cavalier, and we just went east all the way to North Carolina to see my grandma. And it was a 14-hour drive. And you guys, if you guys are my age or older, you guys remember what you did on road trips back in those days? You stared out the window, right? And so you'd stare out the window, and then you'd play I Spy, maybe 20 questions. you listen to some Skinner, and then you stare out the window some more, Right? My family's still in Missouri. We go back a few times a year, and my kids have iPads. They play on my phone. We've got a TV in the car. It came stock, by the way. We have a TV in the car, right? And they have the audacity to tell me they're bored. I'm like, you want to know what's boring? Count cows as we drive, right? That's boring. Like, you guys, you guys got Dora the Explorer. Like, we didn't even have that. Our capacity to be patient is shot, and it's gone and our culture, we, we've just lost it. And I think this is what James says is so powerful about this, is this idea of patience. Because when I say be patient, you, in your mind, if you're like me, you think you're just sitting there with your hands on your lap waiting, right? I'm just going to wait. But the idea in the Bible of patience isn't some, passively, some passive thing where you're passively waiting. It is an active element to waiting. Like there's things you're supposed to do while you wait. And this is what James is talking about with the farmer. The author of Hebrews writes this in Hebrews 12.1. This gives us a beautiful picture of waiting. Notice what he says. He says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That word endurance is patience. Same word. And so notice the action in that verse, right? We're laying aside our sin. We're focusing on God. We're getting rid of the things that entangle us. Like, that's not just waiting by the phone. That's not just waiting in front of the TV. That's an active waiting. And this is what he is, James is talking about here. 
And so how do we do this? How do we actively wait? Look back at verse 7. James says, see the farmer. See how the farmer waits patiently for the early and the late rains. If you guys know any farmers, you know that farmers are the hardest working people you're ever going to meet. But farmers can only do so much. So they're out in the field, sweat of their brow, working hard, wearing those really thick, hard, terrible jeans and those button-up plaid shirts. I'd be wearing like flip-flops and shorts, but, you know, whatever works. And they're working hard and they're giving it all. But you notice something about a farmer. A farmer controls only what they can control. And I think this is what James is telling us. That if we're going to wait patiently, we can control what we can control and trust God with the rest. This is what James is telling us. There's only so much you can do. There's only so much that you actually have the capacity to do. So maybe what James is saying to you today is, what are you trying to control in your life? See, if you're like me, you want to try to fix things so they happen, they get taken care of quickly because you don't want to wait. But the reality is in life, for one, when we try to fix things and we get out in front of God, we usually make a mess. And two, most things in life we can't fix on our own. So what are you trying to fix right now? What, what is God stirring up in you that you're trying to fix that you need to let God bring the results? I think this is what James is saying to us. He says, work hard. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. Realize that every moment the clock ticks, we're getting closer to that day when Jesus returns and Jesus comes back, when Jesus is going to make everything new. And we're on this linear line to one day we're going to be standing in that beautiful place where God has restored paradise. But until then, we need to work hard like the farmer does and trust him with the results. And while we do that, verse 9, notice what he says. Stop grumbling. James is like, look, guys, wait patiently for the Lord. Set, establish your hearts because God's coming. But while you wait, stop grumbling. You know, this theme running throughout the book of James is that you can tell what's going on in here by what comes out. And so James is saying, look, if you're grumbling that it hasn't happened yet, I can't find a solution, where God, where are you? If you're grumbling to the people that you're closest to, it's probably a sign that you're not waiting well. So ask yourself that question. As you wait on whatever you're waiting on, are you grumbling about it? Because if you're grumbling, that's an indication that we need to lift our gaze from our problem to the problem solver. I like what um, Spurgeon says. Notice this, this quote by Charles Spurgeon. He says, those who do not hope cannot wait. Think about that. Those that do not hope cannot wait. But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Sounds like he got a quote from Yoda. <laughs> but it's true. If you don't have hope, you can't wait. So what's your hope in? Forefront, what are you hoping in? What are you waiting for? What are you trying to fix? What are you grumbling about? So we can control what we can control. You want to wait well? We've got to learn to control what we control and then wait on God for the rest. But notice what he says next, and we'll finish up here quickly with this. He says, remember that God always keeps his promises. He says, remember that God always keeps his promises. Remember the character of God. And he quotes, or he talks about prophets, and he talks about Job. Look at verse 10. He says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now, now remember, James is writing to a, an audience of mostly Jewish Christians. There's some Greek Christians in the audience, but mostly Jewish Christians who, who left Jerusalem, who left Judea because of persecution, because of guys like Paul, Saul, before God changed his heart. 
And he's writing to a group of people who knew their Old Testament. Like that culturally, that group knew their Old Testament. And he's talking about the prophets of the Old Testament. So there's a lesson, and a lesson for us is that if we want to be reminded of what God did, we need to be remembering what God did by reading what God did. Which means we need to have our nose in this book and be reminded of how God moves through his people. And spending time in the Old Testament, seeing the prophets tells us that very thing. But if you have spent much time reading about the prophets, you know the prophets were not a popular group. The prophets were a group of people that were ran out of town, that were, were, were arrested, that sometimes lost their lives. We see guys like Daniel was thrown into a lion's den. Micah was called a liar. Jeremiah was thrown into an empty water cistern and sunk in the mud. But what James is saying is remember in how God moved in their life. Remember that God's character always keeps his promises because Daniel was rescued through the lion's den. God used Micah to foretell of where Jesus would be born. And then God rescued Jeremiah so that Jeremiah could then preach the gospel to the nations. And so James is saying, remember, God's promises always come true. Just look at the prophets. But if that's not enough, look at Job. Notice what he says in verse 11. He says, look at Job. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, I don't know about you, but if if I ever get a chance to sit down and have coffee with God, I'm going to say, God, there's a couple of questions I have for you. It's a lot of questions. But one of the questions is, you know, it would have been a lot easier to have conversations with people about you if maybe you would have left that part about, about you know, the Canaanites out of the Old Testament, you know? Or, or if maybe if Peter wouldn't have been such a goofball, right? Or, or maybe if, you know, you would have maybe tweaked the flood story just a little bit so everybody didn't have to go. But another one of the things I would ask God is, God, what's up with Job? Like, do you guys, the book of Job is, it's a little, it's a little confusing, because if you open up the book of Job, you, you see a really interesting exchange between God and Satan. You know, starting in chapter 1. Um, and remember, James is trying to use this to encourage the church. But starting in chapter 1, you see God sitting on his throne, and, and the angels are coming to God, and they're coming back and forth. And then the accuser, the devil, comes to, to God, and, and, and God, he knows what he's been up to. But he asks him, where have you been? What have you been doing? And the accuser says, I've been roaming the earth, and I've been keeping an eye on your people. And so God says, well, how about my, my guy Job? Have you considered Job? Like Job's faith is steadfast. Like Job trusts me and he honors me with his family and everything he has. And so then the accuser, the devil says, okay, well, he won't if you take all the good things away from him. The only reason he praises your name right now, God, is because you've blessed him with money and people and, and family and possessions. So let me take all that from him and we'll see what happens. And for some reason, God says, yes. And so then in a matter of like moments, days, weeks, we don't know, Job loses his family, seven kids. It's left with him and his wife, which we'll find out later wasn't a good thing. Job loses all of his possessions. Everything's taken from him. And yet in the midst of this heartbreak and this suffering, Job 121 says this. Job rips his shirt. He puts on ash or sack, uh, sackcloth and ashes. And he says this. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb and taken I shall return The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's unbelievable, Job, perseverance and perspective. 
And so chapter two starts and God's on his throne. The angels are coming back and forth and James, or uh, sorry, James, or that, that, that Satan comes up and talks to God and, and you know, he, he's like, where you been? He's like, oh, I've been roaming the earth again. He's like, well, have you looked at Job? Notice Job, he's down there singing Chris Tomlin and Matt Redman songs. Like Job's doing pretty well still. And God's like, well, it's because he still has his health. He's like, let me go take his health from him and then we'll see. He's going to curse your name. And God says, okay, again. But God says, okay, but don't kill him. God's got the devil on a leash. And so we see that Job, the Bible tells us that Job's head to feet turned to boils. And then there's this moment when Job's like sitting on his stool and he's got like a clay pot and he's scraping his boils. It's so gross. And his wife comes up to him and she says, why don't you just curse God and die? And Job's probably like, thanks, babe. That's the encouragement I needed right now. I really appreciate that. Yeah, this is exactly what I needed. Let's go get him. So the Bible tells us, though, that Job never cursed God. He had a lot of questions for God. He got in an argument with God, but he never cursed God. How does James use this as an encouragement to us? Because that's pretty discouraging. Well, here's how. Because the audience that James was writing to, and for us, we should know this too. We should know how the last five chapters of the book of Job ends. Because God restores Job. He restores everything that was lost. God heals Job. Job's family, his wealth, everything is returned and he is blessed. See, James is saying that even in the worst situations, even in the situation of the prophets who went through terrible situations, even in the situation of the person that suffered the most in the entire history of the world outside of Jesus, God always keeps his promises. That God is always full of compassion and mercy. And he will, when the time is right, bring you through this too. The reality is that God's rarely early. I wish he was early more often. He's rarely early, but he's never late. So James says, remember God's promises. Be reminded of what God does. And he points to the fact that God is saying to us, his promises are true. He's never going to fail you. He is always coming for you, just like he did for Job and Daniel, just like he did for Jeremiah. It's why Paul and Silas could sing praises to God while in the Philippian prison. And it's why you, in the middle of your heartbreak and your broken relationships and your shattered dreams, can praise God and rejoice and set your sights on heaven because you know God will come and keep his promise every single time. And we know this is true because we see that Jesus stepped out of heaven and came here for us to prove it to us. And he stepped out of heaven and came here and took our place on the cross and has exchanged life and says the deep, full, rich life is available to you. All you have to do is put me first and trust me. So set your gaze on me and everything else will fall into place. When Courtney and I got engaged, we wanted to be married in an old school church. We were going to a church that was a lot, like, a lot like Forefront. It had been updated, and we wanted to get married at this old school church with stained glass windows. And so we found this little church right down the road from where we lived, uh, Gashland Presbyterian Church in North Kansas City. And they had the beautiful stained glass windows. And actually, 12 years ago today, she said, I do. It's been a good 12 years. Well, St. Augustine, this is the stained glass uh, window at the St. Augustine Church 
And St. Augustine was, a, was a, 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 the fourth century bishop of Hippo and has said a lot of amazing things, written a lot of amazing books. But he talks about like life is like us living with our face smashed against a stained glass window. Like, you, depending upon where you are, all you can see is color and jagged pieces of glass, but you can't see it all come together. But as you move back, you begin to see the picture form. And so notice what Augustine says. He says that faith is to believe what you do not see. The reward of faith is to see what you believe. And so what James is telling us is this. If we had to wrap it all up in a nutshell, he's saying this, that God is working even when you don't see it. So look for it. Lift up your gaze. Focus your heart on him. Right now in this room, some of us are going to write this down, and we're going to say, okay, that's a good reminder, and we're going to tuck it in our Bibles, and maybe three or four months from now, we're going to find ourselves in a really hard situation, and we're going to flip through our Bible, and God's going to lead us back to James 5, and we're going to remember, oh, that's right. I've got to focus my eyes on heaven. But for somebody else in this room right now, you are walking through a horrible situation. For somebody else in this room, you came in here after a terrible week, and all you can think about is, how do I solve my problems? And I wanted you to know what James is telling you is that God is coming, that help is on the way, that God will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He is always here for you. And no matter where you are, don't give up. But instead, when you notice this stirring inside of you, remember, control what you can control and be reminded of the promises of God because God wants to meet you right here and right now. So, Set your gaze not on the solution to the problem, but on the problem solver. Let's pray.